This is May 22nd, 2022. And uh, with uh, the Buddha's birthday coming up this coming weekend and uh, uh, the, uh, the little Jukai ceremony we're having the previous night, that's uh, Friday evening, uh, to cap off Temple Night, what we call Temple Night, uh, I thought I should uh, pick up some things about the precepts. That's what that's the Japanese word jukai means taking the precept ceremony or receiving the precepts. Uh, the big one we have and the annual one is on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, but then we also have this other one and uh, uh, for people who want to receive a Roksu, uh, this one is will do the trick uh, as a requirement, prerequisite for receiving a Roksu is to uh, go through jukai even this somewhat abbreviated one this, uh, this Friday. So about the, uh, about the place of morality in Zen, uh, it's not our focus. Morality is not our focus in Zen practice. Um, there are so many uh, considerations regarding morality, uh, and there, there are so many different systems of morality in the world, the Zen mission, the Zen mandate is to see the nature of mind. That is the nature of what, of what all morality, all systems of morality uh, arise out of the mind, that is the, our, our, our nature, our true nature. So that's that's our, our our emphasis, our focus in Zen is seeing into the nature of the mind that underlies all systems of morality. But at the same time, uh, to uphold um, the precepts uh, is is important in seeing into the nature of the mind. It helps. There, there, there is this uh, triad of what, what in Buddhism are called the three essentials. There aren't many things in Zen that you need to memorize, but this would not hurt you to know the three essentials because they're essentials. Uh, the three are morality. Uh, the, the Sanskrit word is shila, S-I-L-A, Morality, uh, meditation, and wisdom. Meditation and wisdom are very much upheld and nourished uh, through the the living a life in which we are not causing unnecessary harm any more than we do all the time. Uh, In other words, to minimize the harm we cause <clears throat> to others and to ourselves. Uh, and contrary-wise, if we are violating the precepts, if we are um, taking life uh, unnecessarily, if we are taking what is not given, that's the second precept, misusing sexuality, lying, abusing alcohol or drugs, then we are 
creating harm to others and to ourselves, our, our, ourselves at least. We're creating harm, and um, and that can be an impediment in terms of the other two essentials are our sitting. Let's just keep it simple. Our sitting, uh, well, no, sitting and moving. That's really what Zen is. It's the, it's the sitting part and there's the moving part. That is keeping the mind free of obstructive thoughts. Uh, breaking the precepts always has the possibility of impeding our, our meditation as well as our our growing wisdom and uh, and eventually awakening to one degree or another. In Zen, we say that the precepts are the foundation of practice. And what's what's wonderful about uh, the the precept ceremony is doing it with others aloud. It's one thing to think about the precepts. That, that really doesn't embody them much. But when we uh, voice them, when we get our body involved, the tongue, the larynx, the lungs, when we get all that involved, and especially embedded with others in the Sangha in a place like the, the Buddha Hall, second floor, uh, then it can really... Um, can really sink. It can get the 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 the, the precepts um, into us in a way that not doing that wouldn't. Really, uh, practice Zen practice is ultimately about um, liberation and, and not causing harm. The Buddha famously said, I teach but two things, suffering and the end of suffering. The first is the first of the Four Noble Truths, suffering, that, that suffering is pervasive in life. We can't escape pain, at least. And so his whole, the Buddha's whole mission, his whole dharma was to relieve suffering, unnecessary suffering. The sort of the cornerstone of uh, Buddhist morality uh, is, well, in a way, the cornerstone of Buddhism itself is the law of causation. That uh, everything is cause and effect. And... uh, and we have a word for that on a moral level, which is karma. Karma is a very complex, deep, deep principle in Buddhism, as it is in Hinduism, I guess. Um, and I'm going to be using it rather freely now, um, just to, as a kind of shorthand, as, as to what... When we are creating karma and uh, when we're not, you know, we speak uh, loosely about good karma and bad karma, uh, but uh, going back to original Buddhism, uh, there wasn't really, they didn't talk about good karma, they just talk about karma. Either we're creating karma that keeps us on the 
wheel of samsara, the wheel of life and death, revolving and revolving through suffering. Either we're creating karma or we're not. And so these precepts, each in its own way, is addressing how we can avoid creating karma for ourselves and others. How we can, uh, I like to think of it very simply, is it how, can we, how we can refrain from hurting people. Just that. Let's just call it that. How could we not hurt people any more than we do just inadvertently? I'm, I advertised in the Sangha email that I'd be addressing especially the first precept this morning uh, because there are three events recently that have... Uh, brought the first precept right into uh, the front of our minds. There was, uh, eight days ago, there was the Buffalo Massacre. There's the uh, likely overturning of, of uh, Roe, uh, Roe versus Wade, and the uh, much, the much uh, reduced accessibility to abortion that is likely to happen. And... Uh, and then a little further back, there was uh, the self-immolation of the, uh, the man in Denver. Uh, so I'd like to take these uh, first, starting with the Buffalo Massacre. Uh, this is the easiest, uh, the most obvious, glaring, horrible, appalling violation of the first precept and I, I really don't need to uh, say much other than that it, it didn't come out of nowhere in the the first precept not to kill but to cherish all life uh, like all the precepts we can see it uh, we can interpret it very strictly or very loosely if we if we interpret it strictly uh, and look at it, say, from the Mahayana point of view, then there are, uh, then we could say that to have any complicity in the taking of life is a violation of the first precept. Any complicity. So what brought this deranged young man to do what he did in Buffalo? Well, the, ease, the low-hanging fruit answer is uh, the easy av- availability of firearms and social media. This uh, double-edged sword that can do so much to bring us together and so much to divide us. Uh, aside from whatever organic Damage there may be in this young man's brain, <clears throat> or who knows, um, terrible abuse as as a child. Um, on social media, he was able to carve out a way of having his sick ideas, racist ideas, inflamed, and especially by this. Uh, this loathsome Tucker Carlson 
uh, who seems to, his whole mission now seems to uh, provoke fear and hate as widely as possible. It is so, so disheartening that according to what I've heard, he's the most uh, most watched uh, broadcaster uh, there is on television. So this is the this is the container out of which this this murderer went about his uh, deranged behavior is having it inflamed by social media and uh, having those firearms available. You know, they're, they're, they will have to determine, I suppose, I haven't been following it that closely as far as the prosecution of him, uh, they'll have to determine whether he's legally competent to stand trial. Um, whatever, whatever the legal decision is, uh, whatever the legal definition is, we, we, surely we can agree that someone who does something like this is insane is mentally disturbed. But the law doesn't work that way, so there has to be determination about that. Uh, and this this gives us the chance to, uh, with someone in such a clear-cut case of, of uh, violence, murderous violence, uh, gives us a chance to see if we can avoid hating him, simply hating him back, returning the hate that he was so consumed by. And by that I mean, can we recognize that uh, that there has to have been terrible suffering behind his murderous impulse, premeditated? There has to be suffering, and of course fear, It's not. It's not denying that he, what he did is, is hateful, but uh, well, it helps uh, to to believe in the true nature of someone like that. It's a little hard if you just have to believe it. A lot better to have confirmed it through awakening to this essential nature that we all have in common. But uh, in any case, if we can not further exacerbate the hate in this world by uh, just leaving it at, at hating him, can we get underneath that and, and remind ourselves that, uh, again, there's something, something very sick about such a person now, there is the Buffalo Massacre and then uh, abortion. This is one of many ways to, to grapple with the first precept. And I'm just going to wade in here. And, and, uh, and since this is, there's a lot more... Argumentation about abortion in the world. Uh, I'm going to first lay out the fact that um, this is just my. 
I'm, what I'm going to try to do is just explore both sides. Just look look at it, and uh, I would never never claim to know. I really don't. Uh, what is right in quotes? What's right and what's wrong? Uh, that right and wrong is really not the primary concern of those of us practicing Zen. It's it's what causes suffering and what doesn't. It's different. It's different. In, a, in the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, uh, right and wrong are, are so central, uh, but not in Buddhism. And there is a difference. We don't have to really focus on right and wrong, that terminology, so much as what causes uh, pain, what causes suffering, what creates karma, and what doesn't. And it's, it's often ambiguous. Uh, it revolves around, I've done, did some work on this last night and recently, uh, mostly it revolves around the notion of personhood. When, when, what is personhood? When does it begin? There's so much out there, I can't claim to have exhausted, <laughs> really be any kind of expert on what the two sides are. But uh, according to one podcast that I, I, I listened to, there are basically two um, viewpoints. Uh, one is the species view about personhood. And this is that uh, conception... Uh, it begins at conception. But in, res- in, in, in response to that, we can say that um, when you look very closely, according to one, one uh, expert, it's very, it's, 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 it's very hard to pin down when conception is. Seemingly, we would think it's pretty simple, but, but um, what this person said quite convincingly is it's a process it can't be broken down into discrete minute incremental stages it's a process which by the way uh, people who really have looked deeply into death that death is the same death is a process it's very hard Roshi Kaplow in his books and uh, I don't know many Zen teachers who went as deeply and thoroughly into death and dying as Roshi Kaplow did in his books. But he, he also says scientists uh, can't quite pin down when death actually is. Um, but back to, back to birth. Uh, does a, is, a, is a single cell zygote, um, per, is that a person? There's the the argument about uh, for 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 making an absolute out of um, you know we unfortunately the the, the phrase pro life has uh, wormed its way into common discourse. I don't like that. Um, you know, it would be wonderful if people who were so passionate about uh, 
non-abortion, stopping, blocking abortion, if they were as passionate about life after birth, life for adults or children. So I'm going to, instead of using pro-life, which was the the concoction of of some uh, Republican uh, media consultant, I think uh, Edward Lentz or something like that, where he decided that this is the good way to change the debate, call it pro-life. Let's call it anti-choice. Here, too, in, with abortion, uh, a, a precise definition may be required legally. I mean, that's true. Uh, but, uh, but morally, it's, it's different. Um, this someone said, and I can't remember, the law often permits what morality does not. Back to the species view is that uh, conception is the beginning of life um, and that there's this, this argument for life potentiality. That is, we, we, we can't kill an embryo, we can't have a, even early, early, early abortion because we're depriving the future value of um, the being. On the other side, they would say that uh, that would suggest that that uh, killing an embryo is worse than killing a 70-year-old. Because a 70-year-old has a lot less future ahead of him, ahead of me. <laughs> even le- I have even less than a 70-year-old. There are the people who have these uh, arguments, these debates, also talk about intuitive judgments. Um, instead, of, instead of doing thought experiments uh, the way logicians do, philosophers do, um, what about just our gut feeling? So as an example, uh, would, would, who would choose... To, if we had a choice of saving five embryos or a child, who would choose the five, saving the five embryos over the life of a child? These are, these are compelling arguments to me. Maybe they aren't to others. And then there's the, uh, there's, aside from the species view, of personhood and so forth. There is the capabilities view uh, of uh, that there is a what 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 defines a person is a cluster of characteristics or traits uh, such as, for example, self awareness, language ability, emotive spectrum, even the form or what they call the casing of a human. So it's no, there's no single feature, but a number of them together, a, a cluster of characteristics that define personhood. Pretty, pretty um, imprecisely, to be, to, to be sure. 
there is this uh, idea of the, the paradox of the heap, H-E-A-P, like a pile, the paradox of the heap. And this is how it goes. Okay, um, when, what kind of characteristics, how many of them constitute personhood? So um, the, the analogy is a, a sand. So when, 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 if you're piling sand in a, in a pile, at what point does it become a heap? So is that 100,000 grains of sand, 10,000, a million? If you say a million, well, is it not 999,999? I like the word heap uh, in this non-Buddhist context because uh, that's one of the translations of skanda. Skanda, for those of you who know the, the Prajnaparamita, uh, it begins, uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of Prajna wisdom saw the emptiness of all five skandhas. Uh, the five skandhas, in our, in our chanting version, the five skandhas are the form or the casing of a person, feeling, thought, choice, and consciousness. These five together, together, is what what it means to be a person. And awakening reveals that these five, even together, are fundamentally empty. And empty of any self-substance, any, any enduring substance. But that emptiness reality is something that we really can't fairly get into when talking about morality, because morality is in the realm of of the relative, the realm of differentiation, of choice, and of and of uh, um, causality. So we'll leave out the emptiness, which is leaving out half of reality, by the way. I want to try to be fair to those of you who feel so, so terribly strongly, uh, are so terribly strongly opposed to abortion. And by the way, I, I think it's better that I not try to parse it out into how many weeks, uh, at what point it's okay or not okay. Um, it's hard to sympathize with the view that that. Uh, even in cases of, of rape and incest, uh, that you shouldn't be allowed to have an abortion. But um, I'm going to turn now to Roshi Kapo's book, Zen, Merging of East and West, where he tackles this matter of abortion. Um, He, uh, he 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 brings forth an actual example of of a, of a woman in the sangha at that time, late seventies, uh, who had considered having an abortion, and had talked to him at some length about it, and uh, ended up deciding against it. 
and uh, uh, some sometime maybe months months after the she gave birth um, he received from her this letter yes our child is quite a fellow how grateful we are that he chose us as his parents more than one person has remarked he's the happiest baby I've ever seen perhaps more noteworthy she says is his wonderful responsiveness and alertness and adaptability how can we ever thank you, Roshi, for the advice you gave us so many moons ago when our child was just a speck inside me? That we once toyed with the idea of abortion is now unbelievable, in all caps, her emphasis, a bad dream. So how can we... Let me just say, the epilogue to that is that for a later pregnancy, she did decide to have an abortion. In Zen, you read everywhere in the, in the textbooks, it's a teaching beyond dogma. And I, and I hope I'm, I'm reinforcing that with this show that there is, you can't say what's, right or wrong for other people. And that's why I'm, I am obviously pro-choice is because, you know, there's, there's an argument against that too. What, what are, what are we drawing from to make this choice of abortion to abort or not to abort? How much wisdom is going into that choice? How much conditioning, how much ignorance is going into that choice? So it's hardly, uh, airtight argument, but um, it's true of other first precept issues of um, it's morality is so complicated. There are so many contingencies, so many things to consider. It's not certainly we can agree, I hope, that we can't judge anyone else who makes a, a sincere, a sincere, deep consideration of something like abortion, uh, and makes whatever decision she makes. Here's another Buddhist consideration with respect to uh, abortion, and that is the the interdependence of different factors, different variables, the, the interdependence of that, that life, uh, the, the embryo or the fetus and the mother and the father and the siblings. How can we ignore the effect of the, of the uh, pregnancy on the mother? There was a, uh, a legal brief recently signed by 154 economists who agreed that overturning Roe would harm women economically through, uh, through loss of education and a loss of labor force participation. They call this the feminization of poverty. 
There are also studies that show that without access to abortion, women show declining levels of happiness, including including fewer and less satisfying long-term committed relationships with partners. Well, I think that's all the time we have for the abortion issue. It's just enough time to completely muddy the waters. Um, and now I want to move on to the the other the third topic of uh, self-immolation. So um, recently, um, a man from uh, Colorado, I think, uh, I went to the uh, went to Washington, and on the steps of the Supreme Court, uh, he uh, set himself on fire. His name was Wynne Bruce. Uh, the body raged in flames for sixty seconds before it was extinguished by the police, and uh, he remained still, sitting upright on the plaza with his legs stretched in front of him. Just giving some detail here. He remained silent. Now, is self-immolation suicide? Well, many people would say it is a form of suicide. I don't know. This, I find, is the, 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 of these three things, the Buffalo Massacre and abortion and self-immolation, I think the self-immolation is honestly the hard, hardest for me to get a clear read on. Here, here are the extenuating factors that would suggest it's not mere suicide. Um, that, that he did it, he said, to, as a protest, a spectacular, dramatic, physical protest of uh, climate change, the inaction, inaction on climate change. It's a way, he said, and his friend said, a way to draw attention uh, to the world. And in that, I see desperate interest in the well-being of the planet, I have to be so careful here. I, if someone without that motivation, or even with it, if someone for any motivation did self, self-immolated, self uh, then I would feel partly responsible. Uh, but I have to honestly say, I think there's... It's, it's it, it elevates it to something more than suicide when when it's a cry of desperation like that. Remember the uh, the monks. There was more than one, but one in Vietnam. More there was one in particular. Uh, the photo of him in flames um, reached across the world, and uh, I, I think 
it's fair to say that it was instrumental in galvanizing the anti-war movement. Now, in that case, it was a Buddhist monk dedicated to relieve suffering. Remember the Buddha's words, suffering and the end of suffering. We can suppose it was, anyway, that that's, that's what was behind it. So that's a factor to the extent that it is done for that, out of that motive. Compassion. Was that the motive of this Bruce Wynn uh, recently? Was there also some mental illness involved? He had had a um, catastrophic auto accident earlier in his life that, at least for a while, uh, caused some brain damage. But then he had gone on and become pretty, functioned pretty well, become a photojournalist. Uh, it's a little, I'm a little skeptical that it was mental illness. Could we, could we elevate that, his, the, uh, the man on the Supreme Court, can we elevate his self-immolation to skillful means? Was it a, was it a way of self, a form of self-sacrifice in order for the, for the greater good? That uh, that those Vietnamese monks in their in their uh, self-immolation also was quite controversial in this country. I heard uh, <laughs> uh, from a Zen teacher in Minnesota that when they were trying to uh, get uh, permission to build a country retreat center, there was a, a hearing in the local town uh, where. Uh, in this rural meeting where one of the uh, locals stood up and said, all I know is that I don't want people sitting on street corners setting themselves on fire. That was his association with Buddhism. Uh, the article I read from the New York Times uh, said that he was, if not a Buddhist, if he wasn't self, didn't self-identify as a Buddhist, he was sympathetic to Buddhism. It's still, I'm not clear about where he stood there. But um, we know that identifying with any religion doesn't mean that you're uh, you're upholding the the tenets, the highest ideals of that religion in what you do. We know this terrible disgrace of the uh, the many thousands of people in uh, Myanmar, formerly Burma, who went on this rampage of genocide against the Rohingya minority. When I was in Burma a long time ago, and I 1979, uh, I learned that uh, 99% of Burmese consider themselves Buddhists. 
But that is not Buddhism. Trying to exterminate someone of another religion. It's appalling. At the time, in 1979, it was so heartening to see see uh, the so many people come out, even on a Saturday night, to the this uh, Shwedagon Pagoda, this this world famous pagoda, where uh, people would come up and and circumambulate uh, on the pagoda. Uh, there, it seemed there was quite a bit of uh, dating going on there too. Uh, young men and young women eye, eyeing each other and having a, quite a nice time. I'm not sure how many of them uh, really got the spirit of uh, reverence uh, there at that temple. Uh, Winston Churchill is reported to have said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. So, but it's still a terrible, terrible, terrible statement that, that so many in Myanmar who even just consider themselves Buddhists would do such a thing. I remember Roshi for years at introductory workshops saying, there's never been a war fought in the name of Buddhism. Um, and I always thought, yeah, yeah. But um, look at that. Look at what happened in... Uh, Sri Lanka, where one of the long, long, long civil war where one side identified as Buddhists. I think it's fair to say that there uh, have been far, far fewer wars in the name of Buddhism than in the name of Christianity or the other, of some other religions. But, um, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's beyond isms. It's how, to the degree that we live up to, uh, the teachings of uh, the Buddha, the Dharma. Okay, we can see, we can see. I think many of us can see self-immolation. We can, or can we respect it? I respect it if it's if it's done as this cry of this pleading for the world to wake up and do something about climate change. I can't, I, it's hard for me to feel critical of that Bruce Wynn for what he did. And it's also hard for me to endorse it. It's thorny. It had great effect in Vietnam. Well, so it seems. Though probably those who would argue that it didn't. I think of of little insects like, well, like ants and bees, where they're so reflexively willing to sacrifice themselves uh, for the sake of the, the of the group, the the collective. Ants uh, you know, forming a little bridge across a puddle of water or something, knowing they're just dying, so that the other ants can walk over their backs. Similar things with bees. Stinging, uh, a threat, someone they perceive as a threat, just reflexively. That's reflex. We, we're not 
we're not insects. We have cognition, we have self-awareness, we have ways of grappling with these ethical issues. Suicide, too. Uh, Roshi Kepler used to be very critical of of people who commit suicide um, without without discarding that entirely I've grown to be more sympathetic than just saying all suicide comes out of ego uh, self-centeredness I think he would have agreed with Lao Tzu the, uh, the, the founder of Taoism from ancient China who said one with outward courage dares to die one with inner courage dares to live. But how can any of us who have not reached that depth of depression and despair, how can we judge others who reach their limit and see that as the only way out? I think it's widely agreed that behind suicide is anger, hatred. I would not be one to get um, terribly uh, filled with pity for people who commit suicide. I can be sympathetic, but, but recognize that, well, what people in mental health say is, is often, if not always, it's, well, look, suicide is an act of murder. We we have it. We call it suicide. We don't call it murder, but it's taking life. That's that's a violation of the first precept. But this is complicated stuff. I remember uh, uh, here's a story for you. What I heard from uh, John Sheldon. He was uh, an early Sashin monitor here. He was the first first or second of a. Uh, our staff members to go to uh, train in Japan. He went to Bukokuji, and uh, while he was there, he was maybe 23 years old or something. While he was there in the temple, he uh, saw a centipede, or at least that's what he thought we would call it, a centipede. And uh, he went about very, very responsibly, went about looking for... uh, a cup or a drinking glass with a piece of cardboard, you know that trick you you uh, just manage to get the insect up on with the help of the drinking inverted drinking glass and you get it trapped on the cardboard with a drinking glass over it, and then you get it out of the uh, out of the house and toss it into the weeds. Well, he was just about to do that with his drinking glass and and uh, cardboard. When uh, Tangan Roshi came rushing over, now let me just insert that the, the, according to what I heard, this kind of centipede is poisonous. Okay, that changes it a little bit. Uh, Tangan Roshi came running over. He brought, he knocked John Sheldon out of the way. He went up on the went up to the altar, got the kyosaku, the stick. He came back. He gave the three refuges. He recited them aloud, the three refuges. And then 
escorted that little centipede out of there. I was in, uh, when I was with Roshi Kaplow, we were living there, working on his books. There was a, we would see our share of scorpions uh, waltzing across the living room floor. And uh, there was one that came across, one of the first ones. And I knelt down and I looked up at him. He was reading and I said, should I kill it or not? And um, he was ready for that question. He very, in a very, I remember a very serene way. He said, well, it depends on your state of mind. If you can kill uh, that scorpion without any ill will, any malevolence, then you're not creating karma by doing it. But if you can't, dot, 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 dot. And so I wasn't convinced that I could, there would be no malevolence in my heart as I killed the scorpion. So I did what then became our practice. I got the drinking glass and the cardboard out and and easily was able to get the scorpion on the and escort it out to the weeds. So much, from a Mahayana point of view, from a Zen point of view, so much depends on the mind state of the person. If, if, if a woman, and maybe in consultation with a father, feels that they, for all things considered, they should uh, do the abortion, then to, to, before doing so, to um, have a little ritual of, of, of expressing sorrow or repentance can make all the difference in terms of being able to get past whatever karma may be created by taking the life of that fetus or, or embryo. All right. Uh, our time is up. We'll stop and recite the four vows.